Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Tonight, we're talking with Danielle Atkinson. Danielle is the founding director of Mothering Justice, a statewide organization working to improve the lives of families in Michigan by equipping the next generation of mother activists. She received her bachelor degrees in political science and sociology from Pfeiffer University, where she helped organize students for peace in the early days of the Iraq war. After leaving college, she worked as a field director for the campaign to increase the minimum wage in Florida. She and her team were successful in winning a raise for one and a half million for Laridians. In 2005, Danielle relocated to Lansing, Michigan to become the executive director of GLADE a multi-congregational coalition. From 2006 to 2012, she worked throughout Michigan forming coalitions that included representation for labor unions, youth, women, and civil rights organizations to increase voter participation among underrepresented voters with both America Votes and Michigan Voices. To date, her organization, Mothering Justice, has trained over 200 women, reached over 12,000 likely mothers in the direct contact voter engagement plan, led several mama conversations around Michigan, and formed the Mama's Agenda, a policy priority plan addressing financial stability issues of mothers in Michigan. Danielle, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. I'm good. You know, I remember meeting you when you were with Michigan Voices, and then you just had the two girls, and mm-hmm. you had you had this great energy. And oddly, about the same time I met your husband, didn't know you two were together until later on someone said, and I was like, of course they're together. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, you have this great energy. And I think, I, you know, I just have to go to and talk about mothering justice because as an older mother mothering activist, you know, mm-hmm. I can recall those days, and I think any mother will remember, like, you know, how you're trying to deal with one, one child, and mm-hmm. the things that you're trying to do, like, how do you go to work, what if they're sick, you know, putting the blanket, finding a clean place to put the blanket to change the baby, all of right. these things, <laughs> and you took these basic mothering things and made a movement, I mean, from changing tables to breastfeeding was that in your mind was it out of necessity how did you go from i mean obviously you had the background being an activist but how did you you take all you'd learned to to mothering justice yeah i mean i think like any good um organizer or any good movement it really starts with self-interest and I, this wasn't something I created out of thin air. 
it was one, it was, you know, the everyday struggles that you're talking about, how to make ends meet with a baby, how to navigate your career, um, and also be a good mother, um, and all of those things. And then with my background in organizing, I basically looked at it and said, these are challenges that if I'm facing, other people are facing. This is not, um, this is not an isolated instance. It's a systemic problem. And so I, you know, I turned to one, the smartest moms I know, you included, and, and, and asked what should we do about this problem. And then, you know, channeled our ancestors. Our moms, mothers of color have been organizing since there were mothers of color. And that is really where I have the inspiration, my own um, situation, but also the experience of the people that have come before me. How did you get, you know, and it, it's a leap. And even though you know, like, you know, to have these things about being a mother, you know it's a right, you know it should be respected. But, you know, yeah. we've had generations of being told, you know, that basically, I mean, they say we can have it all, but then they don't want to help us to have it all. Yeah. When you're talking to these new mothers, how do you, and, you know, not new mothers, but just mothers in general, how do you take yeah. them Help them take that leap from, you know, like, I know it's a right, but to demanding that right. Yeah, exactly. I think that's really the crux of the problem is that moms don't know that these are things that they deserve and are deserving of. And that's because motherhood and everything that comes along with motherhood and everything that's come from motherhood as far as caretaking um, and nurturing professions, um, have been discounted and really taken for granted. So moms take themselves for granted and they take their needs for granted. So really, you know, it started with these mama conversations that we, we had. and um, They're really just small in-person conversations that are value-led. And we talk about what are your personal values, what are your family values, and are those being lived out um, on a, on a larger level, you know, we, we have those really broad questions and then we bring it to the state budget and we bring it to um, how our government enforces laws or doesn't enforce laws and really say, is there a connection between your values at home and the, the policies that we're seeing come out of Lansing or Washington? And when the answer is no, then we know we need to change it. And in those conversations also, we see a lot of moms, we hear a lot of moms talk about the everyday problems and they really internalize them. They say, oh, it's my fault that I don't have childcare. It's my fault that I didn't take into consideration how expensive it would be and, and, and what it would be like to not have leave or not to have, you know, not to ask for that raise when I needed it. They've internalized all of these problems. But then when you're in a group, you're, you're looking around and you're seeing the nodding heads and you're like, well, if it's not just me, then this is something that we all should work on changing together and it's not because I did anything wrong and it's really that so having moms in a circle looking at each other's faces and saying you know what I am a person in this community and it doesn't reflect my values or needs so let's change it you know I think that that's one of the things too that I like is like you talk about wages and what you're worth and how you're how you you're supposed to have it you know I can recall and at one point in time working someplace where they were going to downsize it. And someone who had a parallel position to me, they were going to give him a severance package, which included a year's pay and benefits, and they were going to give me two weeks. And I said, 
you know, that's not fair. And they said, mm-hmm. but he's the head of a family. Mm-hmm. And I was like, but I've got a kid. I'm a head of a family. And I mean, really having to go to huge lengths, you know, lawyers and everything to get that. But it's it's like that that's out there. And even though we've come a long way, baby, you still have mm-hmm. people who who look at women and say, okay, well, you know, maybe we won't hire her because, you know, she's going to start to have babies or she's going to be an issue or somehow or other her worth to her yeah. family isn't the same. How exactly. Far, it, yeah. Yeah, do Go you ahead, see sorry. I'm sorry? Do you see changing in attitudes? Yeah, I do. I do see changing in attitudes. One, you know, uh, there's a crux with fathering justice um, and within the within the feminist movement of, you know, women are just now uh, are just now stepping out, or their their worth is being seen as more than their worth to their family, um, and that is um, extremely important, right? Like uh, politicians often say you know, she's someone's daughter, she's someone's mother, and we have to push back and say, I am worth something all by myself, and I am worthy all by myself, you know? And, the, and Mothering Justice comes alongside that message and encourages that message by saying, it's not all about the children, because that's for a long time we've been talking about how do we save the children, how can we be there for the children, and that is what we see in these policies that don't reflect the needs of mothers and mothers as the primary and most important person in that child's life, along with the father, along with the other mother, if that's that's the relationship as well. But understanding that caregivers um, are good and worthy all by themselves, and people are, and independent from their relationships. So that's like, it's a teeter, it's a a very fine line that we walk within that movement. But I think both of us, both sides of that conversation are moving the conversation forward to saying that every single person, regardless of, of their marital or parental status, is worthy of being recognized, of having their needs and their rights met. Now, I remember one of your early victories, which was the changing tables up in Lansing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how did that, I mean, you know, I mean, some people would go, oh, that's just a little thing. But when you stop yeah. and you think about it, and now you see Jay's got changing tables in men's rooms and ladies' rooms, but they've got changing tables. How did it feel to get that first victory, and how did that come about? Yeah, that was really great. I mean, that that is so funny because it, it was an accidental victory, but it was so poignant, right? Like, I think for all the, you know, the reasons that you're, you're thinking about and, and alluding to is that, you know, we took moms up to Lansing, and I had my newborn um, little boy at the time, and I stopped into a, a friend legislator's office, and I said, I'll be right back. Let me go change my son. And then I come back, and I'm like, um, so I'm going to change him on the couch because there's no place for me to change him. And, you know, I was talking to a mom legislator, and that's what, you know, that is what it means to have moms and caretakers in these positions of power because she said, what? She, you know, she wasn't somebody who was like, oh, sorry, okay, well, change him on this, uh, change him here while I awkwardly look at you. She was like, that is crazy. And so right then and there, we went to the facilities manager, and because I was, I was standing with a mom who had power, she was able to get that immediately. And thank God, because, you know, 
obviously I'm friends with that legislator and I could change my baby wherever and I, I don't really care. I'll change the baby on my lap. But what if it was another mom who barely made it up to Lansing to talk to her legislator about something that was crucial to her and she couldn't change her baby? That might, that might change her, um, you know, her view of Lansing and, and, and power completely, and she might never go again. And her child deserves the right to be able to use a bathroom. We talk about bathrooms. We talk about these individual rights. We need to really be living that and understanding that every single person deserves these rights. And, um, and, and sometimes it's as simple as, um, you know, getting the facilities manager to change a changing table, but that simple victory can lead to that mom being the greatest of advocates for other causes. You know, and I think there's, and, and even with that, and I was also thinking about, like, the breastfeeding, I mean, there's a dignity that's, like, reclaiming yeah. that dignity to where, like, oh, God, why are they breastfeeding? But it's like, you know, I'm taking care of my child. I'm taking care of business. So it also seems that a lot of the things that you're doing is, like, reclaiming that dignity of the mother, or not reclaiming it, demanding that dignity yeah. of these mothers who are there, like you said, she's coming up here making a difference, and yeah. that voice wouldn't be heard. Yes. Wow. So, exactly. I mean, I, I, you know, so when you found, how easy was that transition to go from where you were statewide organizing to do all that to, to forming and building your own organization and, and to bring other people in? What did you bring with you, but what did you say, hmm? This doesn't work here. I need to recraft my organizing yeah. skills. Well, you know, I started Mothering Justice because, like I said, because of my own need, I um, was an organizer who was, who, you know, became pregnant and realized, like, hey, my maternity leave is actually not even maternity leave. It was like the time, the unpaid time that I'm going to take off to take care of my kids is not enough. And if I'm struggling, other people are struggling. But then I realized that, like, there was a power, there was a power dynamic there um, that needed to be shifted. So we, we started Mothering Justice, you know, simply talking about weed policy issues, but then quickly came to the realization that women of color are not often at the table when it comes to making the policies or crafting the policies. They're often there when it comes to organizing to gather people and rally people around a policy that somebody else has created. But at that first table, we weren't there enough. So we stopped, we, we didn't stop, but we paused on the work that we were doing to focus on leadership development so that we could have more mothers of color learning the skills that they need to be at those decision-making tables that were critical to crafting the policies that really met their needs and met them where they are. So we have a larger um, focus on leadership development than we did before, um, but we're really proud of that, and we're unapologetic about our desire to train mothers of color um, to be leaders. So that was, you know, that was an early shift to the work, um, but really crucial, I think. What is uh, the youngest age level of mothers that, you know, you're mothering justice activists, what's the age span? So anybody can be a member. We actually say we're mothers and others. Like anybody who cares about a mother or knows a mother can be a member. So that's pretty much everybody. Um, we had some really, actually like early on, we had some really great activists that were not mothers um, and not even women. Um, but um, we, uh, we want to tell, we want, you know, we want to be a welcoming space for people regardless of their parental status. 
um, and whether, you know, whether or not they have kids in their house or not, or, um, you know, we just see the importance of this. And we had a member, like, I remember when my mom was struggling, and that's why I want to work for Mothering Justice. So um, it's everybody's welcome. (laughs) Now, I will tell you, one of the things, you know, and I I sort of mentioned them earlier, what I, I really like, too, about Mothering Justice and is that you have a a partner in parenting in your husband. Mm-hmm. I mean, often, I mean, I can, I've seen posts. In fact, I've been out and seen Frank with some of the kids, and you might have the other ones, and you're all doing the kind of things that you're doing. That's just like um, for the Women's March. You were in Lansing. Yes. He was here. And that partnership, and, that, and that also it, it's more than that partnership. It's that co-parenting. As we start to talk about, you know, mothering, it's, it's mothering is, is, is one thing, but it's that nurturing and family building. I mean, mm-hmm. how, do you, how did you come to that balance? Was that a discussion you had before getting into the, you know, the, like before yeah. we go to the aisle, let's talk about this? Or is it something that has just sort of like grown organically just to be what it is? Girl, it's not organic, no. <laughs> <laughs> we, I, I mean, my my partner and I are both committed deeply to social justice and, and gender equality. Um, but you know what? We are products of our society as well. So I think we originally, when we first had kids, when we first had our firstborn, we fell into the typical gender roles and, and, and realized very quickly that didn't work for us. Um, and especially with how we work and the work that we do, um, with him being home, you know, sometimes more than me and sometimes me be more than home more than him. It didn't work to have me have all of the knowledge about the doctor's appointments, the, the school decisions, all of those things. And it didn't feel comfortable. Like, I, I know Frank didn't feel comfortable um, in only, uh, you know, being kind of relegated to the disciplinarian, um, house fixer kind of guy. So, you know, even though we fell into those norms, which I think people should realize more and more, like, we are products of our society. You're going to fall into gender norms. You're going to fall into, um, you're going to, you're going to fall into racial norms. Like, these are normal things because we are products of society. But if you're conscious that of what works and what doesn't work for you, you can quickly overcome them. So, you know, it's been a road for us. Um, We've definitely been working at it. And I think, um, we have a very good flow right now. We have a very good groove as to like how to how to parent these um, five children, um, but it, it definitely comes with work and a commitment to um, the our quality and the work. And Frank is you know Frank is the biggest mothering justice um, supporter there is in the fact that he lets me do this work. So um, and I don't mean give me permission, but enables me by taking care of our kids when I'm not there. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I, and I think that that's just, it's just incredible, you know, to see. And, you know, it's like to have that balance and to do it. And then also I always tell people, you know, your kids are learning from watching. And so mm-hmm. not only your kids, but the kids who are around them are learning from watching. And it's like, oh, well, this is what family is about. Okay. Now, I met with the two. I met you when you had two. Now you're up to five. You take them with you and, you know, been there, done that. And, you know, to I can recall that at a certain point, um, you know, when it was like one more protest and my son was, oh, mom, please, 
you know, oh, mom, please, you know, or, or yeah. even now, it's like, I know you're out there. How do your, how do your children feel about it? Are they happy little protesters and are they, do they, do they contribute ideals or how, how do they yeah. fit into the social justice movement? Yeah, I mean, they're normal kids who sometimes uh-huh. think it's, they think it's great and it's part of everything they know. Um, it's as normal to go to a Saturday protest as it is a Saturday birthday party, but uh-huh. sometimes they're sick of it as well. You know, <laughs> when, we, when we question, you know, a little too much, they're like, you know what, can we just take this at face value? Uh, it's basically what they'll say to us, and um, we have to explain why, you know, why we have to be thoughtful <laughs> about all of these things. But, um, but, no, they're more likely than not they're happy to do mm-hmm. this work, and they will stand up for what's right, and they'll stand in the gap for their friends, which is the most important thing. Um, and, you know, we, we try to help them in their own little ways understand the privilege that they have and understand that having privilege, the only point of having privilege is to be able to, to be there for other people. So, um, you know, we are, we work on their own rights as well, knowing what they're able, you know, what they're allowed to say no to and because, you know, there are, they're still children, but you know what their personal rights are and the autonomy that they should have with themselves. So those are all things that we, I think Frank and I might push that more than we even push arithmetic. So we have to find that balance within ourselves. But, um, you know, we are blessed to have kids that, that love this work and love people. Now, I, I know that you are passionate about decreasing infant and maternal mortality. I know that um, you have, you've had home births. And mm-hmm. how does that, you know, and, and I think that many women now are, are, are thinking more about holistic health and what is is happening there I know that some people are just like oh my god why do they want to have it but I mean you've had happy healthy children how does that that advocacy work and what are the benefits of it what are you trying you know like as you talk about um good making midwives available healthy home births um and how and how that affects infant mortality? Where do you see that going, and and what are you learning from that? Yeah, I mean, so we approach the reason I, you know, I have my personal views uh, on home birth and and choice, but really mothering justice um, interacts with that as far as like financial stability. First of all, midwives are awesome choices that in Michigan we push licensure because we wanted. We wanted women to have more options about how they gave birth. Um, and we wanted those midwives to be fully compensated for their work. Not being able to be licensed means they weren't able to accept insurance, which means they, you know, they're, they're, the, the amount they charge um, clients was less than what they really deserved because they wanted to meet a need for people. Um, and we wanted to honor that profession and honor the women that were doing that work. So we wanted them to have licensure. Now, when women have more choices, they are able to, um, they're able to pick the, the birth that's best for them, which and oftentimes when you're, when you're a healthy woman, having a baby um, at home and with a midwife is a better choice for you because you are able to um, have care in your home you're able to have more care. You know, I've had a hospital birth, um, 
uh, birthing center birth and then three home births. And I was attended to way more with a midwife than I was um, when I was in a hospital. And for me, it was a better choice because I was able to have a, an open, um, more trusting relationship with a midwife. And so being able to have that choice. Um, you know, some people have better relationships with doctors and in-hospital ho- in midwives, and that's great. But for the ones that needed that extra option, it should be a choice. So um, I, was, I was happy to have my babies at home. And we know that home births have lower um, infant and maternal uh, mortality rates than in-hospital births when the mom, you know, all things be equal and the mom is healthy. So we want to make sure that women of color, especially since even though maternal mortality rates are going down, the disparity amongst women of color and um, white women is not shrinking. So we, mm. need to, we need to address that, and we need to speak to that, because often um, people talk about the lowering of infant and maternal mortality rates, but they don't talk about the disparity. So, you know, midwifery, um, home births and, and midwifery um, is just one piece of that high that we could take on and stand beside our sisters in the profession. Okay, well, we're going to take a, I'm going to take a short break in our conversation and um, make, as they say, a pause for the cause. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. Okay, we're back, Diane Yell. Um, I have a question. From your advocacy, from your work at a state and federal level, we were just talking about women's health issues and really, like you said, childbirth, but women's health issues and access to affordable health is not just about, not only about health care, it also has a, a economic impact on women. Mm-hmm. You know, what's happening in that area? What do you see are your challenges and what are some of your goals besides, you know, talking about a fair living wage, um, sick time? maternity leave, what is happening? I mean, we see this whole new administration coming in. They're talking about rolling back the Affordable Care Act, which covered many issues affecting women. What's the state of women, the state of the mama, as far as health? Yeah, I think you're completely right to to point out the, the linkage and the connection between health and economic security. Um, you know, the leading cause of, of um, foreclosures or, you know, being in despair, um, financial despair, is a health crisis. Um, having a health crisis and not having health insurance can just zap a family's um, resources and reserves and leave them in a situation where they are desperate. Um, my sister-in-law has a chronic illness, and before the Affordable Care Act, she was not able to afford insurance, or she, or she was turned away because she had a pre-existing condition. Um, the, the, the idea of losing the protections of the Affordable Care Act are 
incredibly horrifying to a lot of people, especially moms with sick children or who have illnesses themselves. And I don't think that the administration has really thought through the consequences to many American families. I mean, I can speak to my mom. My mom is a cancer survivor. Um, and she would not be able to have insurance if she, if she was um, pre-Medicaid age. Um, she would, um, sorry, Medicare age, she would not be eligible for insurance. She would mm-hmm. be denied because she had cancer um, three times, actually. Um, so we are so grateful for the ACA uh, that it's really scary to think about that. Um, think about losing that. So that is probably the biggest, the biggest concern right now um, is losing the ACA and the protections that come along with it. Um, and we all need to be in that fight. And it's really, you, know, you spoke about the times that we're in in the new administration. There's so much coming at everybody so fast. And I think, you, you know, the title of your show is, and speaking to the intersectionality um, is really important because we all have to be there for whatever fight is on the chopping block if we are to survive the really scary things that we are seeing proposed. We all need to be there for the healthcare fight, and then we all need to be there for the environmental fight, and then we all need to be there for the LGBTQ fight. We all need to be there for each fight and, and take the break when we need it, need it, but get ready to get back up again. You know, I know that you were in Lansing on January 21st. I was in Ann Arbor. And, you know, like you said, I mean, one of the the beautiful things about the women's marches across the country was as you hit each and every other point, there were people where suddenly it seemed like they were getting it. You know, it was like you got as, as many, you know, roars from the crowd when you talked about education, the environment, health care. Uh, a fair and living wage as everything, you know. Yeah. What was it like in Lansing, and what were you hearing not only from the stage but from the people around you? What were their concerns that that you heard and then that you're going to process and maybe in some ways will affect the work of Mothering Justice? Yeah, it was a wonderful day, and it was wonderful to be on stage with those powerful, dynamic women, all strong and great in their own right, but to be together was, you know, quite possibly the most powerful thing I've seen um, in Lansing. It definitely was the largest crowd I've ever seen in Lansing, and I've been doing, you know, I've been doing activism for 10 years in this state, Um, and it was wonderful. And one thing that really hit me is when I approached the seat to speak, there was a sign language interpreter to my right. There was a whole set of uh, chairs set up for people with disabilities. And there was a woman who was a caretaker um, to this person who lovingly um, would, from time to time, take um, this gentleman out of his wheelchair, rub his legs and arms because it was cold, wrap him in a blanket, and stayed for every single second of the march. And it's about that. It's about making sure that we're being accessible at every level for every single person. The other side likes to call it snowflakes. We need to be, you know, the glacier that they cannot stand in front of and we need to stand united. Um, So I am, you know, that was something that I think we have captured for the first time is that understanding 
that we need to be there for every single person, every single fight. And hopefully we can maintain that. Hopefully we can sustain that. Um, but you're right. I think it's, it's, it's so great to see people understanding the connections between these issues um, that we're all one second away from being um, more marginalized than we can get up and fight again. Mm. I want to tell you, I got the memo because a friend of mine told me if I had kept my coat on, you and I would have had on the same outfit just about because I had on <laughs> a sweater that was the color. I don't know if it was a scarf you had, and I had, did have on a black coat, but I was just warm. I took it off, and someone said, did you two, you know, share a memo? But I think that, <laughs> that, that I, I mean, it was such an amazing day. I mean, like I said, like you were saying, to see all these people, to see the caregivers, to see that signing and making things, the, the space so that it was accessible, that people could get up there. And I know to see, like, at one point, I know that in Ann Arbor, they said to people, would you mind moving over this way so that people with disabilities, and people just moved. I mean, yeah. they didn't have to, to say, excuse me, it's maybe, and that was, I thought that was, like, so great. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and to have young people, even children, in that audience seeing how we can we can be better together. Yep. So exactly. when the executive order on immigration came out, did you go to the airport? I didn't. Sometimes being a mother does get in the way of being an <laughs> activist. <laughs> so I had just got back into town. I actually was surprised that I wasn't that there weren't protesters when I flew in because um, uh, the night of the executive order, um, but I, I had to get home. I was home with my kids after being away, so I, I couldn't turn around and go back to the airport. But, you know, that is exactly what we are about, right? Like that mm-hmm. is such a great show of force um, and, you know, that resistance that we need to be in these times. Um, just, I, I had to, you know, I just got to Facebook and um, it was like, I am so proud of my friends because this is the resistance that we need to be. Yeah, and it seems like the resistance is going to keep going and going to going. Now, you live in Royal Oak, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when that happened right after the election at that school where they said that some of these kids were saying, like, build the wall, yeah. what kind of conversation did you have with your kids? Yeah, you know what, uh, you know, I, I don't know how much we had a conversation about that because my, my kids were pretty traumatized by the election. So mm. um, talking about what happened at the middle school, was um, it, it really wasn't appropriate at the time mm-hmm. to talk to them about. Um, but, you know, I got straight to work and, um, you know, started organizing with my friends. So there's a parent group that we are seizing on this opportunity of the community being appalled by what happened um, at the middle school, and we're taking it to organize to get more inclusive curriculum to make that safe, that, that school a safe place for every child um, and to have community input. So hopefully my children will be able to see better from our response than to know what was going on there. It's kind of the approach we take, um, you know, being being, uh, you know, black people in this world, it, it's very easy to get caught up in the hard things and the, and the attacks. Um, so we, 
we work to to show the resistance in our everyday life and how we are building power in our community and how we're confronting things instead of um, instead of having to deal with all these negatives. We're, 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 we try to celebrate our ability to have power in our response. You know, that shows another good side about you. It's because you do this work. You see these things. But then you were saying, like, how your kids were traumatized. You know, I'm going to tell you, you and Frank are the cool kids, okay? I mean, you're, you're making hair conditioner for, you know, in honor of Madam C.J. Walker. You do family vacations. You do all these kind of, of cool things which provide that balance. And, you know, and, and, and I think that, you know, in some ways, and, you know, your kids are going to remember it because I often tell people, like, my mom, did those cool things. Like we were always mm-hmm. knitting, sewing, doing something. And at that time, sometimes I might not have thought it was that cool. But then later on, looking back, I went like, you know, wow, you know, I had a great childhood. But it's like you, although you are really connected and you're really doing these things, there's an intentionality about your parenting to have these really memory-making activities yeah I try to you know yeah I mean I think my parents made a huge sacrifice coming to this country Um, my mom was a a nurse and my father was a police officer in Jamaica and you know they were revered in their community and had you know people that cooked for them and and helped with my sister and they left that um, to come to the United States where my father was unemployed and my mom was a housekeeper you know, whereas she had a housekeeper in Jamaica. And I, I try to honor that sacrifice. Um, you know, like I, was, I don't know if you remember, like in the early days of the Obama administration when Michelle Obama was really criticized because she said, my biggest job is to be mom and chief. And people criticized her and they said, you should be down for the movement, you should be doing this, you should be, you know, doing A, B, and C. But as black women, we recognize that, like, we have had so much pain in our ancestry and our parents have sacrificed so much that the the biggest, most wonderful thing we can do to honor them is to be intentional about being there for our children. So that's why, you know, like I don't work on the weekends typically. Like sometimes I'll, the, the march was really important and, you know, there are some occasions when I do keeping or weekend things, but what people don't really notice is I'm not really there on the, on the weekends and, um, in the evenings because my first priority is to be present for my children and to make sure that they have a normal childhood that is so ordinary (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) that it's extraordinary, um, especially for a people that have struggled so much and especially to honor what my parents did. Um, That is, you know, every day I try to honor the sacrifice they made to come to this country for my sister and then eventually me by being the best parent I can be. That's, a, that's incredible. I mean, and really, I mean, that's, I, you know, that's one of the things that I remember from my childhood. And I remember, like, and I did things with my son. And, like, even now he remembers, like, you know, we did that. It was kind of hokey at the time. But you know what? We yeah. things. And, you know, and it is. It's like honoring that sacrifice. And even there, sometimes you might not have recognized how deep the sacrifice is, but it was like, yeah. My mother said, you can never spoil a child with too much love. 
Exactly. You know, forget things, love. And the picnic dinner, the learning to knit, that was love. And I yep. think that that's what, what, I mean, you've got happy kids. You can see in their face that they're happy because both of you make that time to be intentional about it. You know, so, but I imagine that, you know, some days you might be kind of tired and mm-hmm. the day to make the conditioner for Madam C.J. Walker, what do you do on, I mean, how do you, you make that shift from having been all day the mama activist to, like, mama-in-chief at home? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, again, like you said, having a partnership really works. Um, you know, Frank is making dinner when <laughs> I am taking a break. You know, like, we, I also am a, a nursing mom. Um, and so for for three months out of every child's life, I am just basically a food source for a baby. And so Frank <laughs> has to make food for everybody else, do bath time, sometimes do homework, you know. So having that partnership is definitely number one. So, um, you know, I definitely want to make sure that everyone knows that I am not doing this alone. And then, you know, two, I told my children, mommy can be a great mommy for eight hours. <laughs> And I, have, and I have no qualms about saying that. I'm like, listen, I got, I got to go to work, and I'm there, and then I'm here with you, um, and then mommy can be a good mommy for this amount of hours, and you have to go to bed on time. Or, like, I tell them, like, mommy has emotions, too, and she needs rest, too. So, um, you know, they have to honor that. They have to understand and, and recognize that I'm a human just like anyone else, and I get really tired and really grumpy. And so, you know, they have to own their responsibility in, you know, having good family time when it is, when it's family time, but then going to bed at 8 o'clock. So, you know, so that really helps. A really structured day um, helps. And then I'm, you know, I don't always, I'm not always on. There are some times when I tell, you know, Frank, I'm like, today is the day that I have to just call it in. And I'll be in my room watching repeats of Parks and Rec and A Different World. And can you just deal with it all? Because, um, you know, the, the hard days are very hard and, and being tired is real. So um, it's all those things, realistic expectations, and, and I'm not always awesome um, in having a partner. Oh, yeah, that's life. Yeah, goes with the pants. Yeah. Uh-huh. So Florida girl, Jamaica parent, Jamaican parents, Florida girl, you're here in Michigan. Okay. What was the, I mean, that's a culture change. I mean, that's, I mean, I mean, was there a culture shock? I mean, Michigan, Michigan, Florida. How did that, you know, do you ever have moments where you go like, okay, I've got Frank and the kids, but what am I doing here in Michigan? Yeah. I mean, I think Florida, really the only thing Florida has on Michigan for me right now is the weather. Um, Michigan is so awesome, which is not fall. Let's not take that for granted because the beach in wintertime is nice. But, um, you know, Michigan has this deep culture of thoughtfulness and community that I've never seen anywhere else, definitely not in Florida. Um, So I love it here. The the cold is very hard. It's very hard to deal with but um, I wouldn't trade it for the world. So, But if I could take my Detroit peeps and move to Grand Bahamas, yes. Yes, I would take that. But since that's not an option, 
I deal with the winter. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you say that because I talked with um, Jerry Peterson, who's the executive director at Ruth Ellis Center, and they have been in California. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.